and a very good morning to you. Welcome. We're live from London and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, my panellists, Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell, will join me in the studio to go through the week's main stories. Isabel, what have you spotted? Well, Emma, you may think it's 9am in Midori House in London, but if you were in Lebanon, you really wouldn't know because in Lebanon, the Muslims and the Christian authorities have been unable to agree what day to change the clocks. So the Christians have gone into summertime and the Muslims are going to wait till the end of uh, next month. Thank you for that, Isabel. We'll be getting the latest from Bangkok. This is James Chambers, Monocle's Asia editor in Bangkok. And I'll be coming on to talk about art fever in Hong Kong and election fever here in Thailand. We'll be checking in with our editorial director, Tyler Brule, off on his travels in Dubai. And we'll get the latest updates on the Swiss banking sector from Mark Ditley in Zurich. It's the 26th of March, 2023. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you. Well, I think it is morning as well. There's been a certain amount of discombobulation in the Nelson household, at least, trying to check what time it was last night. But Isabel, is all well with you? How's your week been? My week's been fine, and I sympathise with the time. As we were saying, one year we went the wrong way and we were two hours out for the rest of the the country for for the whole of Sunday. Um, But, you know, in general, the week's fine. We coped with the time change. And a good week for you, Lynn? Yes, um, a nice busy week, and I had a very early night last night, so I am fighting fit this morning. Yeah, you're sort of like school monitor this morning, top of the class. Um, Let's head to Dubai, where I think it's midday, where we can hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Uh, good afternoon, Tyler. Good afternoon, Emma. No time changes here. Though a lot of uh, Lebanon uh, and then certainly much of the Beirut scene, and from what I can determine, uh, because of course it's Ramadan uh, as well, um, a lot of Christians, a lot of Maronites uh, here in Dubai, um, I think as much as uh, Lebanese uh, also uh, of the Muslim faith as well. So, I, But I haven't been looking at watches um, around uh, the breakfast table. Which is strange because in Dubai there's quite a few of them. And the watches are big. That is the thing. Certainly, you can be sort of three tables away and someone has sort of a rather large Swiss timepiece and it is quite easy to see, but not not in the case of uh, the groups of, uh, of gentlemen uh, that were nearby. Good. And so so bright, they can take your eye out if you get, get a bit of direct sunlight on them. Um, how is life in Dubai? What takes you there? Well, we're a couple of things, uh, and certainly our listeners will know that we've been on a bit of a book tour. Uh, book tour, uh, of course, uh, will also be showing up uh, just beyond the walls where you are, Emma, over the coming days. Uh, we'll be launching our Spain book uh, in London, but we're doing that here um, in the UAE this evening. So we're having uh, a little uh, gathering, but 100 uh, subscribers, maybe also people passing through uh, as well, who uh, certainly have been hearing us promoting this. Uh, so that's going to happen uh, at 1800 uh, golf time. And- the monocle Dubai crowd, or indeed the Dubai crowd, is is a very international bunch, isn't it? It is, and uh, I, that was the amazing thing last time we were here. It was some, it was, it was a few years ago um, when we did an event, but it was, it was. I, I recall that it was not long after, uh, of course, the flare-up uh, of everything that uh, that that has happened and, and and continues to happen to a degree in Syria, and it was amazing how many readers we had. Uh, now we can't count that many, but uh, but certainly they were hearty and they uh, they were new to to Dubai at the time. That we had readers from Aleppo, from Damascus. 
this. Uh, and I'm very curious to see uh, if those readers are still around uh, as much, of course, you know, people from um, all over the region um, and, of course, Emiratis as well. Um, from your, I mean, you, you arrived about, what, 24 hours ago. Um, from Compared with your last trip to Dubai, how's, how's it looking? I mean, my, my general experience of Dubai is the, is the endless, endless airport, which is such a beautiful thing to look at when you land. It's, it's the most elegant thing. But then when you're inside it, you just walk for days. It's true. And I think also because we have to recognize this is the hub of, of, uh, of course, the Emirates uh, and they have pride uh, position, uh, I guess, as they should. So if you come in on another carrier, uh, you're at a very, very uh, distant uh, terminal. And of course, there's the long walk. And, and then, of course, there's the monorail ride to get to the terminal. But actually, the, the arrival was was incredibly uh, efficient. I, I got in on Friday evening at uh, about sort of 1030 or so. And there was there was really no one at well security and and, and immigration was was well manned and um, it was it was very easy to get into the country indeed it is one of those absolute masterclasses in in airport function is Dubai isn't it it is and uh, and you know this is I guess in, in many ways it reminds you of you know, if we rewind to Singapore 30 30 years ago uh, when, of course, the Singapore government, the Singapore authorities were building up Changi as a brand. And as we know, as we talk about this all the time uh, in the pages of the magazine, across our airwaves, uh, on our newsletters, that, you know, when you're a, whether you're a small nation uh, or big city or big nation, you know, airports are incredibly important because they are you know, emblematic of first impressions, lasting impressions, no matter what people say, they continue to be part of a national brand. Uh, One thing that I have noticed then when I've been in Dubai is there has been an increasing number of Russian voices to be heard. Oh, you think so? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm at the Al Nassim, uh, which is uh, part of the Jumeirah group, and I'm looking down across the pool. Now, I'm actually looking down at the adult pool, which is um, which is actually quite which is quite quiet. And, and maybe there's a reason because um, there are a lot of Russian families with with a lot of children uh, and and they're more towards um, the beach. But there was a piece in the NZZ uh, a couple of days ago. Um, so in the, in, the, in the Swiss newspaper talking about just you can't even call it a surge. Emma, and and it was, this has been a conversation over, over certainly the last 48 hours here. But they say there's somewhere between 600,000 and 1 million Russians living in Dubai now. Uh, and I was, I was talking to a gentleman earlier who said, he goes, I believe the number is even higher than that because, you know, you can stay long enough without having to register officially. Um, and and it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, everywhere you go, uh, there are just, there are Russians everywhere. And of course, this is you know, where many are, are choosing to, to sit out the conflict here, but also set up new lives. And, uh, and how, does they, it, they, they, sorry, how does that change the atmosphere in Dubai when you have such a, a huge new, and dare I say, it's like very controversial presence? It, absolutely. And, and I, I think, you know, on one, on one side, I think they feel there's sort of safety in numbers, uh, you know, I, Certainly, it's been uh, probably not the you know the easiest uh, to be uh, Russian guests at a hotel in in Europe or many other corners of the world. Uh, sideways glances and and all kinds of uh, maybe uh, elements of human interaction that go that go with that. Uh, but here, obviously, again, there are so many, so you you feel a confidence. 
And, you know, in many ways as well, this is, this is what this place is about. You know, Dubai you know, really is, you know, we talk about melting pots, but this is a collision of continents. It is Asia. It is Africa. Uh, it, you have to consider the region. And, of course, it's, it's Europe all coming together in one place, which is moving at an extraordinary speed. Uh, and, and the Russians are just yet another wave. Some, will, of course, will make their fortunes here. Uh, and, and, of course, many, many more will move on. Let's look ahead to, to next week. Once you... Uh take off from Dubai, where do you head next? <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, of, of places which, uh, which might be a little bit uh, similar to, to this model, uh, off, to, off to Singapore uh, and then, uh, then to Hong Kong. And uh, it's sort of, a, sort of a headline act, one day only, or one lunch, uh, as, as the case may be. Um, the, the, the Foreign Correspondents Club of Hong Kong is, uh, is throwing open its doors. They're starting their speaker season again. And so they've invited me to do the, uh, the, the first uh, lunch. Uh, so we will be doing that, talking about the world of, of journalism, uh, news gathering, uh, certainly Hong Kong's position uh, in, in Asia, uh, and, and what that means, of course, uh, from a media media center, uh, and uh, and then all after that up up to Tokyo, and then heading back your direction, or almost your direction, almost uh, but, but back back to Zurich, almost near enough when you're going that far. Um, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. That was Thanks Tyler Fillet, our editorial director, on the line from Dubai. Um, listening to that, Isabel, when you see. Tyler heading to the Foreign Correspondents Club in New York, in Hong Kong, Kong. I should say, talking about the future of journalism in Hong Kong. Does that lift your spirit somewhat? Mm. Dare I say, you are one of you know, you are the China expert on Monocle Twenty Four. So it's that we know we need to ask what you think about the the general perspective. I well, it gave me a stab of nostalgia because I have enjoyed many an evening in the Foreign Correspondents Club of Hong Kong in happier times. Uh, Since then, uh, gosh, let's see what happened. Apple Daily's been closed down. Jimmy Lai's in jail. Hong Kong Free Press has gone. The South China Morning Post has trimmed. I think it's pretty tough in Hong Kong, honestly. Your thoughts, Lynn, because you, you, you know Hong Kong very, very well. We, can, we, can, we yeah. could devote the next 20 minutes on this, couldn't we? Um, May well. Yeah, like Isabel, I have very fond memories. I'm a life member of the Foreign Correspondents Club of, of Hong Kong and also had very many uh, wonderful evenings there and have watched in sadness over recent years the way um, the uh, uh, strictures, if you like, of the mainland have, have really infringed on, on what was a very feisty uh, free press, mature free press atmosphere. And I, I find it very sad. And I have very many friends who have left uh, for Bangkok or for their home countries because they don't feel that they are safe. And very many Hong Kong journalists have also left for the same reason. So and quite what? a number of them are here. Yes, indeed. I, it's it used to be the place where you could say things you it it was very well informed it they they published books that couldn't be published in the mainland you could say things in the press that couldn't be said in the mainland and these things were being produced by people who were close to china who went frequently to china who knew china so actually i think it's a loss for china too mm. this the, you know you you cut off your sources of information you cut off people's access to understanding and uh, it, everybody loses what role does this organization now play though Oh, I think that's a really good question because um, it's been under a lot of pressure from uh, the uh, 
uh, Hong Kong-based Chinese authorities that call themselves the Xinhua News Agency uh, in in Hong Kong for a, for a long time. Uh, the former president was uh, blackballed; his visa wasn't renewed, um, and that was really an indication, a very strong indication, that the encroaching pressures of previous years were getting serious. And I think um, I think it's fair to say that I have noticed that uh, the club itself, as as formerly the world's premier journalists organisation, has really been uh, cowed. It's not what it used to be. And that as well is a great loss to us all. It'll be interesting to see who sort of go, who goes to the event that Tyler's speaking at next week, won't it? Because one wonders who is left. Well, yes, a lot of people, as Lynn says, have moved out. Some have gone to Taiwan, to or Singapore, places mm. where they feel they can, you know, still practice their profession. But it's, I think, in terms of the of the spirit of the place, it's just very different. You mentioned Taiwan. Let's move on to one of those stories that has been dominating the headlines this this last twelve hours, at least, which is the fact that um, the Honduras have now formally allied with China and have and have split from their their pledge, their, their connection with Taiwan. Um, that, did that come as a surprise to you, Lynn? Because uh, you knew that you knew, you'd heard about it a little bit, hadn't you? But it has been confirmed now. Well, it's, yeah, it's been talked about over the last few days, and I think it was confirmed overnight. Does it bring down to the number of diplomatic partners that Taiwan has is um, a baker's dozen, I think, yeah. of, of 13, perhaps, something, something like, like that? Yeah. China has the number, the the money, and the and the heft, and as it's done across the South Pacific, it's it's buying off. At, um, yeah, I think it's sad, but you know Taiwan remains important in very many ways, not not least in chip manufacturing. I think we can say, and um, and the Americans still have the uh, have a law protecting Taiwan, and I think that the tensions will. Uh, remain, if not ratchet up, over coming months and years. There's been quite a lot of coverage saying that you know, Tegucigalpa had its arm twisted quite hard by Beijing to make this happen. Yeah. Um, I, I'm Isabel. shocked to hear you suggest that. <laughs> I've never heard of China twisting anyone's arm before. Um, oddly enough, when Salvador um, did the same thing uh, a couple of years back, it was Washington um, rebuked Salvador for recognising the PRC when of course Washington recognized the PRC back in the in the 70s it was it was a very odd and contradictory thing but i would say in taiwan's defense that they may be losing the the small states and the microstates and you're right they are 13 now that that fully recognize um but they're doing rather well in europe because the the PRC made the mistake of of trying to bully lithuania a very small baltic state with <laughs> which doesn't like being bullied by because it's Right next to Russia, and and they they um, I, honestly, I think Lithuania won hands down, and the result of that contest was that Lithuania is now the recipient of massive amounts of investment and support from the United States and Taiwan, including you mentioned chips. Taiwan is now setting up a chip factory in Lithuania, and Lithuania is riding very high, which has made Central Europe think. Hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we had all these promises from China, but nothing really materialized with what was 17 plus one is now down to 14 plus one. And so they're all very interested. So the new the, the new president of the Czech Republic announced that he's going to visit Taiwan any minute. And so, you know, Taiwan uh, swings and roundabouts, frankly. Mm. 
And somewhere, if you look at Germany, that's completely stuck at the moment because I think they had a um, an education and research minister who went to Taipei this week. Yet we have the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, going to Beijing next month. And um, China has said, hang on a minute, you can't play both sides. Can you play both sides? Well, they are. Right? They are playing both sides, <laughs> yes. I mean, everybody does play both sides. So we, we, here in the UK, we have a Taiwan, um, it's not called the Taiwan Rep Office because they don't like using the name Taiwan, but we have effectively a, a diplomatic What, do, what can you call it? A Taipei. Taipei, you can call it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As at the Olympics and the Asian Games. Exactly. And, yeah. So Chinese Taipei, you, mm. you, they can take part in the Olympics, but there are things that they're not allowed to do. I mean, I think the World Health is, uh, Organization yeah. was a particularly thorny one during the pandemic pandemic. And so the Chinese put pressure on multilateral organizations not to admit Taiwan, even when, you know, there's clearly a case as in, in you know, world health. Um, and I think that, you know, that the, the, there's a lot of pushback now because China has upped the ante on, on Taiwan. And quite a lot of countries are thinking, well, hang on a minute, let's push back. I mean, if, if, if that were the case, if I were in Taipei, or you know, if I were Taipei, I'd be just thinking, well, sorry to go to go see about to go see to go see Galpa. You've got, we've, I've got, I've got bigger fish to play with now. Mm, your loss. Yes. Mm. Sorry, off you go to Beijing. No problem. Lynn, anything? How's your week been news-wise? What have you spotted that you think? We could we could be discussing this morning. Well, I've been having um, a very close look at uh, what's been going on in Pakistan. Uh, the last time I was there was July, and um, a few months after that, I had a chat with um, former Prime Minister Imran Khan because now he's in in um, in the outer. Uh, he's talking to people like me, and um, I've noticed that over uh, recent months, uh, his situation since um, an assassination attempt on him in. November, his popularity amongst ordinary Pakistani people just seems to be growing. He's calling rallies, he's causing a lot of trouble and argy-bargy for um, the government. And I think that if there was a... um an election tomorrow, he'd probably win and be prime minister again. The trouble is that the government doesn't want him to stand, <laughs> and so he's facing all sorts of um, criminal charges that the the government is having brought um, against him, including terrorism. And if any of these charges eventually stick, he will be um, uh, banned from standing for electoral office. We have this astonishing thing now that Imran Khan being seen as anti-establishment. I mean, when was he last in charge? Not so long ago. April. It's almost exactly a year that mm. he was turfed out in a no-confidence uh, motion um, in Parliament. He was in power for a couple of years and didn't do very much. Um, but I don't think it's really fair to lump him in with the political elite of Pakistan. That's There's a stranglehold. There's been a stranglehold on power between a a small number of uh, families and the military since the country was established in 1947. And even though he couldn't have got to um, the prime ministership without the support of the military, he has... um he is seen by Pakistanis as being an alternative to uh, that elite uh, uh, family feudal military grip on power that, that hasn't really worked. The country is a basket case. Inflation just passed an official 40%. Ordinary Pakistanis are really struggling. And there's a, if we just look at Imran Khan himself, um, 
if you look at the pictures that have been coming out of uh, Lahore in the last 12, 24 hours, he's had to address a rally from behind a bulletproof from inside a bulletproof mm-hmm. box, basically, he was wasn't he shot in the shin? He was shot yes, in the he's leg. Still, he's, his leg is still in in plaster. In plaster, yeah, and that yeah. happened what at the end of last year in November Moving, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, if you were in Morocco, I mean, you have to have the your guts doesn't even begin to describe what is clearly an incredibly volatile time for him to try and to go back to power because he knows that every time he steps out, he he is genuinely in danger. He also is surrounded by tens of thousands of people who still adore him, you know, so it is a very interesting situation. I mean, outside his house was, was you know, besieged, if you like, in a friendly way by a, a protective crowd when, when there were rumours that he was going to be arrested. Um, there's, there's a very good profile of him by Attica Rehman in, in this month's Prospect magazine, which is, you know, kind of interested but not entirely friendly, I have to say, to Imran Khan, whose fame derives in the first place from his being young, handsome and a, and a world-class cricketer and that, that kind of what, what made his reputation. But as Prime Minister, he was, you know, he he wasn't a huge success. I mean, you talk about the state of the economy. Well, you know, that that happened on his watch as well. Oh, he absolutely. Did not fix, yeah. He did not fix the kind of mm. terrible problem of debt. I mean, I have to say, Pakistan is a hard thing to fix. So, oh, yeah. Um, Where do you start? Yeah. But you drive around or walk around um, uh, cities in Pakistan and, and say something to get a conversation started about the local politics and it'll all, you'll always get the answer, Imran's fantastic, Imran's great. And then when you point out that not much, you, know, you don't have a job, mate, you're an electrical engineer or a computer program and you're driving a taxi or working in a restaurant. Um, And, uh, you know, it's only a year ago or the last time I was there, it's only six months ago that Imran was turfed out of office. So what did he do for you? Oh, (laughs) <laughs> and then they have to think about it. But it's his his charisma and his cachet and his status as an alternative to, to you know, um, the establishment as they see it that really is the basis of his popularity. It, it is curious because mm. he was married to Jemima. I mean, this mm. is a man of wealth. Um, he, he had some moral authority because he did a lot of work um, raising money for cancer hospitals after his mother died of cancer. So, you know, he's got he's, he's a fairly rounded figure mm. in terms of image in Pakistan. Mm. Um, but he didn't, he didn't turn out to be the most effective prime minister. And it's which is, it's hard because essentially the power is with the military and, and you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. They, they're they the kingmakers. Well, and in, indeed. I mean, that begs the question, does it really matter who's in charge in Pakistan? Probably not. Well, um, I think that it, I think that that's kind of easy to say, but what Imran Khan did achieve while he was in office was breaking a taboo against uh, criticising the military in any way. And now people not only talk about the military and its role in politics, they do criticise it. And, OK, so there's one achievement. But when I, you know, I'll just... I'm not a, I'm, I'm not waving a flag for him in any way. When I interviewed him last year, I went through my notes and transcribed my, my um, uh, Skype thing with him and I started checking the facts and... You know, <laughs> he spouts figures that don't. He, that he that just plucks them tally. out of the air. Yeah. You yeah. know, so he's got that um, modern 
politicians' way of just, um, uh, you know, this wave of facts and figures, so-called, come out of his mouth, but they don't stand up to scrutiny. It's just the saying of it that is what matters. As long as it sounds good and it makes me sound good, I'll say it. But it it, it just didn't stand up. Did, did he offer you a cup of tea? I wasn't. Um, I wasn't with him. Oh, um, but he did. Did he offer you a cup of tea? Well, it's a while back, and I was trying to remember because Attica, one of the, she starts off her piece by saying the extraordinary thing about Imran Khan is that he doesn't offer you anything. And he'll said she she met him once a long time ago, um, where he ate an entire meal without offering her so much as a cup of <laughs> that water. You know, said, this is very unusual in Pakistan. I <laughs> lost my vote immediately. <laughs> That's it. I mean, at the end of this, is he going to get back into power? And if so, for how long is that going to, you know, how long will that cycle be until he's turfed out again? Well, he and the people around him are talking in terms of if he survives. There's a lot of um, if he's, you know, the expectation that there will be more um, attempts on his life. He's been blaming the government for being behind it. Um, And this element of martyrdom in in Pakistani politics has really reached a... I don't know, Zenith or Nadir, whichever whichever way you want to look at it. But he is, um, if there was a vote tomorrow, yes, he would probably win. Thank you for that. Um, let's move to, well, let's rewind a little bit to the beginning of the week. Um, the huge meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Moscow. So much was made about um, the fact that, you know, the balance of power lies very much with Beijing, yet this was on Russian turf. Isabel, what were your what were your conclusions from it? Because it sort of went away quite quickly, didn't it? It sort of peaked, the anticipation was huge, and then we didn't hear much. Exactly. I, and uh, apart from seeing the biggest flags in history, it actually dwarfed the two men. <laughs> it was just extraordinary. Um, but yes, you're right. So there was a great deal of excitement that Xi Jinping was, was going to Moscow and there were all these pictures of them, you know, swearing eternal friendship and gazing deep into each other's eyes. But when the statement came out uh, at the end of the meeting, it got very little coverage and there were some interesting things, actually. Amongst the interesting things that didn't happen was the um, the, the second Siberian gas pipeline, which Russia is rather desperate to get. It wants it to run through Mongolia to Beijing. Beijing doesn't want it to run through Mongolia. It wants a longer and possibly more expensive route. But Russia needs it because otherwise they're they're very limited in the amount of gas that they can offload to China and they've lost their European market. Um, And that didn't happen. Now, the last time there was a standoff like this, it was um, after Crimea when Russia came under sanctions and was looking to sell more gas to China. China struck a very hard bargain you know yes they they you know they recognized yes they recognized a rather desperate seller and they said yeah but you know little cheaper would be good and and i think that's what's going on here the other thing uh, that i noted was was not in the documentation you remember that china had put forward what they called a 12 point peace plan which was really a kind of statement of you know virtue um which included in the original uh, the recognition or the importance of territorial integrity and national sovereignty. You think, yeah, okay, good. Does that mean Russian troops need to withdraw from Ukraine? It wasn't in the joint statement that just they talked about promoting peace, no mention of territorial integrity, but there was mention of the fact that, you know, wicked other countries unnamed should not gang up against the genuine security concerns of 
other countries. In other words, stop it, what United States. What does that States. mean? What, it, what does that mean that China has refused to do or Russia has not gone for? Well, it means that, uh, it means that Russia wouldn't have that in the joint statement, I think. And that really blows a hole in China's efforts to present itself as a, as a valid peacemaker, which, you know, was already a pretty thin case. It's done quite well for itself in that department, though, in the last few days, with bringing back Saudi Arabia and Iran. That's exactly. something that's a, a subject, Andrew Muller's done a whole programme on it on the, on, on the foreign desk, so do, yeah. go, do go and search it out when you have a moment. But, but there's that idea, isn't there, that, that suddenly China is beginning to become a sort of scooping worlds up. Absolutely. And, and that was what made people look again at the, at the peace plan. <clears throat> the peace plan had no sort of diplomatic underpinning. It's just, a, you know, it's a piece of paper. Um, but two things. One was that the deal you mentioned and the other was the rumour as yet unfulfilled that there was going to be a call between Zelensky and Xi Jinping. Which hasn't that happened Has yet. not happened. And I think that, you know, if, if the joint statement can't go so far as to recognise a basic principle of the UN, you know, from two P5 members, I don't think Zelensky has a lot to say to, to Xi Jinping, frankly. No, because, it, I mean, as we've just even heard in the last few minutes when we were talking to Tyler in Dubai, Russia's influence, if, if you're not in... The, the sort of like the, the Western, not it's a pretty big bubble, but the Western bubble, which is entirely anti-Russia. There's a lot of people out there who are quite happy to do business with, with Moscow, aren't they? Yeah. I guess so, um, but a diminishing number, I guess, and the fear of, um, of of sanctions has to be part of that consideration. But I find it really quite interesting that, you know, in the current atmosphere, what Xi Jinping has done is he's chosen sides. And it's not a side that I think, and you will know better than me, Isabel, in the long run is going to be good for China. Isolating yourself from, potentially, from uh, foreign investment, uh, Western markets. Uh, you know, American uh, soft and hard power is is a pretty big influence on on the most important markets for China's manufactured goods. And China needs to grow those markets just to, I mean, it needs a certain level of economic growth every year just to stay, um, you know, still, you know. Um, it needs growth to keep going. And so what Xi Jinping seems to be doing by making this very clear choice is um, rolling back economic uh, development that we saw and the world hailed with uh, Deng Xiaoping's very famous trip to the south and then um, accession to the World Trade Organization. Everything was going great guns and suddenly we're talking about Cold War. Is it, I wonder, are we not a little bit beyond that now? Because when you look at the West's dependence on Chinese objects, everything, when we will talk about TikTok in a little while... Um, I wonder whether China knows that untangling that relationship is is almost impossible. Would you agree, Isabel? Well, again, if you look at the actual figures for US-China trade, despite all the rhetoric, despite the sanctions, it continues to grow. So what China sees when, or what Xi Jinping sees when he looks at the world, and he says this, and, and he says this in the company of Putin, that... Uh, Western liberal democracies are in decline and that this is 
China's moment. He talks about changes unseen in a hundred years, and that is code for it's our turn now. Mm -hmm. And so this alliance that he's formed with Putin is about remaking the world. It's about remaking, uh, you know, the world in in favor of China. It's about uh, remaking the rules on human rights. It's about, you know, China getting its way in ways that it, it thinks it hasn't in the past. So, yeah, and I think that, you know, the 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 final words between Xi and Putin as they as they parted which were picked up on 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 microphone where this is a, this is a hundred year opportunity and we are reshaping the world together so we have that's a, what he said a hundred years um opportunities I mean when you you're an expert on Afghanistan you know you know and in that part of the world China's influence out there is huge isn't it you know, I don't think it could, it could take, uh, it takes a long time to build a reputation and a minute and a half to lose it. Right? <laughs> and um, I think uh, COVID and um, uh, threats, look what um, China did to the Australian, uh, for certain sectors of the Australian economy. Um, they It doesn't take very much of that to uh, turn a population against uh a behemoth like China. Nobody likes being bullied. Lithuania is a great example of that, but Australia doesn't, Europe doesn't, uh, the UK doesn't. Nobody likes being bullied by by somebody who says, we're bigger and better than you and you need us. And I think that in America, um, we are seeing a switch from, as slow as it may be, made in China to made in Mexico. Uh, bringing supply chains closer is is a new trend. So it might, yeah, they, they might hope for 100 years, but but just let's see. Because as I said, they I think that China needs probably 6-7% economic growth annually just to stand still. And when you have any uh, buffeting any, any uh, of of that, you lead, it leads to unemployment, which is already happening, which uh, potentially leads to instability, which leads to a real shakiness um, beneath the uh, foundations of the Chinese Communist Party. And Xi Jinping might think that he's going to be president forever, but just like never say never, never say forever. It's either. a long term thing, isn't it? I mean, we, I think it was in January, wasn't it, that the the Taliban signed a deal with the Chinese. Um, to go and drill in the country's north. Yeah, and so did the Republic. And um, the, the Taliban is not a legitimate, recognised government, so how valid those those deals are, who knows? Um, but also it's not a stable country and the Taliban is not... Um, uh, uh, it's, it doesn't have any validation. Um, and you look at what's happening in the Central Asian states. You know, they're looking at Russia and saying, mm, I don't know, and they're looking at China and debt diplomacy and, and not liking what they see. It's already happening in Tajikistan. And... Um, Sri Lanka and parts of Africa, and they're being courted by the United States and civil society in Central Asia likes that. And so this dissipation of attention and power and diversity of, of diplomacy and investment, I think, is, is, is possible and healthy. I think we are seeing a lot of states, though, that don't want to be asked to choose and won't choose. You know, it's a bit like the old non-aligned movement, if you remember. Mm. And funnily enough, the membership is... is is kind of similar to what we're seeing now. So if you talk to people in India about the war in Ukraine, I have, you know, had long arguments with friends in India about 
you know, whether it was the Americans' fault or the Russians' mm-hmm. fault. And they're very much saying it's the Russians' fault. So in that sort of non-aligned um, swathe of countries, emerging economies and so on, what you tend to get um, is... Yes, China's, a, you know, in some ways a big and scary thing. But look at the United States. Mm. It's 20 years since the Iraq war. Do we really think the United States is a benign power mm. that never breaks the rules? So mm. I think a lot of damage was done on your reputation point mm. to the reputation of the United States Absolutely. over the last 20 years. Mm. So trying to argue the moral case is kind of difficult after torture, Abu Ghraib, mm. extraordinary rendition and all of that. And China can say, we never invaded anybody. We are, you know, peaceful. So, you know, countries don't want to be forced into a choice which will have consequences for them with no particular upside. And so they just rather sometimes sitting on the fence is the most comfortable position. Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell, stay with us because we're going to head now to uh, Bangkok on Monaco on Sunday to hear from our Asia editor, James Chambers. James, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Emma. How is Bangkok today? Bangkok is scorching. We're uh, approaching summer and the front cover of the paper is about how we're going to peak at 43 degrees Celsius. So not today, but in in a a few weeks. When are you going to peak? So you've got a couple of weeks to get yourselves ready. I mean, how do you go about peaking at 43 degrees Celsius? Well, you you know, the the, the Songkran Festival is coming up and that's when everyone douses themselves with water on the streets. So I feel like that's the survival uh, method. Okay, lovely. Just wondering if there's any tips. Um, So you've been backwards and forwards from Hong Kong. You were of late, our our Hong Kong bureau chief, uh, moved to Bangkok, but you were back in town a couple of days ago. That's right. I got back from Hong Kong last night. Uh, I was in town for Art Basel Hong Kong. Um, It was the first one since uh, all the COVID rules were removed uh, and international visitors were allowed to come back, the mask rules were gone, so I guess I wanted to attend to see whether Hong Kong was back. And is it back? Well, that was the question that everybody was asking, Um, and I guess the answer, which I was getting consistently, was it's not back yet, but it's getting there. So there's that desire, isn't there, to to reconnect the city to the outside world? I mean, how how are they going about that at Art Basel? Well, I guess this year's Art Basel wasn't just about the fair itself. So, you know, international art lovers and gallerists and uh, collectors, I mean, they wanted to come back to to reconnect with the city and see all of the new things. And one of the biggest, you know, kind of additions that's happened over COVID that people haven't been able to see is the wonderful M Plus Museum, which... It's, it's kind of fair to compare it to the Tate Modern in, in London. It is a fantastic um, gallery, and I would you know, encourage everyone to come and see it. And you had museum directors from all over the world who just couldn't wait to come you know, to see it. Uh, and it, w- it went down very well. And at the same time, they had these major kind of announcements and openings. So the auction house Phillips had a big party where they launched their new six-storey kind of auction house right next to M plus and uh, Hauser and Worth announced they're opening a, a big street level gallery. So there's all these kind of positive uh, developments in the art space that, that, that gave 
added a bit of uh, you know uh, happiness and, and, and positivity to the, the whole Art Basel Hong Kong. I think happiness and positivity is something that's, that is arguably pretty needed in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, uh, yes, our editorial director um, is heading there in the next couple of weeks. Just tell us a little bit about what your uh, what your you know this is your old outpost, James. How does it feel now since you left? Well, I, it, getting back there is kind of the first time that I've f- felt like I've missed it, and it, it did feel like. Hong Kong was getting back to its old self. I mean, the streets were crowded, people were out, people weren't wearing masks, the bars were full, you know, drunk bankers were spilling out onto the streets and throwing up on the steps. I mean, it it really did, you know, it made me yearn for, for the old <laughs> Bangkok, uh, the old Hong Kong, sorry. Um, but then then there are just elements of of the kind of, the, the, the censorship and the, and this kind of, inc- encroaching authoritarianism that, that just left a bit of a sour taste. So, I mean, uh, Hong Kong keeps shooting itself in the foot with things like um, pulling artworks that uh, off, off big billboards in, in Times Square. Um, and there was a film that featured uh, Winnie the Pooh, which was, which was pulled. And then, uh, you know, when I was out on Friday evening, it was streets were full, but then the police turned up uh, and basically, you know, just spoiled the night. And there was these scenes where you had, you know, revelers and police just shouting at each other. And these things wouldn't have happened in, in the old days. So it just, it feels like Hong Kong might be coming back, but it'll be a different Hong Kong. James, sitting there reacting uh, quite sort of vividly, uh, I've got Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell sitting next to me, both dear lovers of Hong Kong. And um, Isabel, your face when James is talking about bankers throwing up on the steps after a big night, you looked almost nostalgic. Well, yes, kind of, uh, certainly that kind of exuberance I do remember, not particularly fondly at the time, but hey. It's good. And how about you, Lynn? I mean, just listening to you know the old days of Hong Kong there. I mean, well, it sounds I... like quite a full-on experience. Oh, yeah. It was, um, it was my favourite place in the world for a very long time. It was, you know, you worked hard and you partied hard and shopped hard as as well as I recall it was a really wonderful place to be. I don't remember ever seeing a banker throw up in the street, but I certainly saw many drunken bankers because there was, you know, it was that sort of a place. Lots yeah. of banking. Lots, Jam- of, lots of money. James, is, is Hong Kong still your, your favourite place in the world? Uh, I would say so. I'm, I must say I, I am enjoying Bangkok a lot, um, but... Uh, I haven't ruled out going back to Hong Kong. It is a fantastic place. It is a very unique place. Um, and if you are a, a, a drunk, a banker who's drunk or not, who, <laughs> who wants to earn a very good living and, and doesn't want to get involved in, in you know, the whole debate about uh, politics and democracy and, and free speech, then you can have a very good life there. Well, let's look at your, let's look at your current and future life in, 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 uh, in Bangkok at the moment. Um, in the aviation world, um, there's, an, a new, there's a new airline uh, just about to take to the skies called Really Cool Airlines. I mean, that's, that's something else, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It is something else. I think the word, in our profession, the word cool is always a difficult one to use. I don't think you ever, as a writer, want to use it in your, in your text, unless you're a refrigeration specialist or something um but you know when i saw this announcement come out this week i mean it did grab my attention so i don't know whether 
the the aviation veteran behind it is just very good at marketing. Uh, but this is certainly going to grab some attention. And when you look at the the mock-ups of the really cool airlines new planes, I mean the the front of the airplane where the pilots sit is uh, has a a pair of sunglasses around it, and it's wearing and the plane itself is wearing headphones. So. Um, and what's I guess what's interesting is this, this is targeting long haul European travellers. So you may well find yourself, Emma, you know, booking uh, your next trip to Bangkok on really cool airlines. Oh, there's there's three of us here in London who are who are sort of <laughs> furiously looking at the pictures of a really cool plane, um, and and just thinking, yeah, I'm 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 up for a bit of really cool. Who, but why aren't we on the inaugural flight? That's what I want to know. But we're not. Actually, James, tell us why aren't we cool enough to be on the really, really cool airline? We've all got flight? headphones. We, what do you and have? Sunglasses. To, yes, we all have got headphones on. Uh, that's because we're in a radio studio. <laughs> we wouldn't normally find with headphones on. Um, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, who's you say there's a you know an aviation veteran here, but what what market? You said they're trying to target the the, the Europeans, but is there a need for a really cool airline to start up in Thailand, James? It seems like there is because uh, the, the the Thailand Tourism Authority has announced that it wants to attract, you know, get back to the 40 million uh, tourists who came to Thailand before COVID. And they're even, you know, want to double that by the end of the decade. And they've, they've said that to get to that number, they need more flights and they need more airlines. The, um, the national flag carrier Thai Airways has been having a tough time but they're managing to to sort themselves out. Uh, another a number of the other existing airlines like Bangkok Airways, they've come out recently and announced that they're returning to to profitability. Um, but you know, really cool airlines is just one of at least three new airlines that are, are going to take to the skies next year. Uh, and I guess to answer your question, the reason why you three aren't on it yet is because it, <laughs> Be it, it hasn't Be it hasn't received its license. Ah, oh, marvellous. Yes. I was going to say, be careful yes. with your words, James. Uh, James Chambers in Bangkok. Uh, really cool, as ever. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. I'm also joined in the studio by Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell. But in a moment, we head to Zurich. Stay with us. Monocle's springy April issue includes our retail survey. Here we rate the retailers, CEOs and shops improving the cities they call home. We tour a New York bookshop that's starting a new chapter and meet the CEO reviving Helsinki's best department store. Elsewhere, we visit a Spanish enclave in Morocco, head to the runway for the final Boeing 747 delivery in Washington State, and hit the dance floor in Barcelona. You'll also find plenty of fashion tips in our annual style survey, plus plenty of travel and hospitality picks to put a spring in your step this season. Order your copy of Monocle's April issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 9.46am. Let's head to Zurich, though, where it's 10.46, to hear from uh, Mark Ditley, editor of The Market. A very good morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Emma. So it's good to have you on a week after the demise of the Swiss bank Credit Suisse taken over by UBS. Has the dust settled yet or is there still a large amount of post-mortems being carried out? No, there's still a large a large amount of post-mortems. 
Um, the Swiss are still scratching their heads how, you know, how 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 this happened and how it was possible that it even came this far. So a lot of the papers in the last 24 hours, I know that the, the, the Financial Times uh, was, was talking about how the Swiss government was, was going to try to make sure that this never happened again. I mean, it, it, what is the general assessment? Yeah, you know, the thing is, um, a bit less than 15 years ago, after the fall of Lehman Brothers, uh, UBS had to be rescued by the Swiss government and the Swiss National Bank. And back then, uh, you know, there was a, a, a rallying cry, so to say, in Swiss politics to make sure that this could never happen again. And less than 15 years later, it was necessary to uh, to to rescue uh, bank number two, Credit Suisse. And we had Karin Kellner-Sutter, the the, um, the, you know, the Switzerland's finance minister. She did a big interview in the NZZ yesterday, didn't she, saying that the global regulatory regime for two big-to-fail banks that were set up in, in, in 2008 doesn't work. Yes, yes. I mean, it's 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 a fascinating and even a devastating uh, uh, thing to say. Basically, what she said is we have realized that on, in times of such acute stress in the financial system, it is not possible to um, to wind down a bank that ran into trouble. So a, a rescue operation was the only alternative, which basically means that we have built an airbag that works well, except in times of a crash. You know, I mean, there's never there's never a case where you have to wind down a bank when everything is normal. This is usually the case when uh, when things are under stress. So yeah, basically, she's saying most of the laws and regulations that we have introduced after the global financial crisis don't work. So when you're wandering around um, Zurich and having a look at the sort of, I would imagine some of the words of Credit Suisse are disappearing from the tops of buildings and being replaced by UBS. What are people talking about in terms of how their daily um, operations are going? Well, first of all, you don't see that yet. Um, the 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 brand uh, Credit Suisse is still is still omnipresent. There's even talk uh, that UBS, which is taking over the entire Credit Suisse, that UBS might uh, let the brand live on for a couple of years longer. I mean, they're they're in no hurry to get rid of the brand Credit Suisse. Um, from what I hear, people at the bank, they work, uh, they continue working as if, you know, like before. The main topic of discussion in Switzerland is whether UBS gets to uh, to keep the Swiss bank, uh, because if they combine the domestic banking operations of Credit Suisse and UBS, they will be an absolute behemoth uh, in, in Switzerland. So there are, there are calls for them to split off the domestic banking of Credit Suisse again. And there's a, an article in the Tages Anzeigen today saying that the new BS um, <clears throat> needs to be um, counterbalanced by a bit of competition. And it says in order to break the monopoly, post finances to receive a banking licence. So, so is there a sense that people are going to try to, um, well, it sounds as if the, the whole Swiss banking industry is going to, going to need a recalibration as a result of what's happened? There will be some 
a need for a recalibration. I mean, you can't say that Switzerland is underbanked, really. So, you know, it's it's not that the new UBS will have something like a monopoly uh, uh, position. There are lots of regional banks, cantonal banks, uh, the Raiffeisen Bank, PostFinance and so on. So Switzerland is definitely, definitely not underbanked. However, there are certain business lines like corporate banking and so on, where you know, companies from from industry are saying, you know, until now we were happy dealing with at least two banks, Credit Suisse on the one hand and UBS on the other hand. And now we worry that we only have UBS to deal with. So there will be some need for recalibration there. Mark Ditley in Zurich, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, in the studio with me. Well, I have Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell. Let's let's spend the next the, the closing uh, few minutes of the program. Um, we don't often talk about TikTok because it's seen to be quite a sort of a moment of levity that sucks your brain out when you're when you're playing it. Um, sorry, TikTok, um, but. There is a huge geopolitical mess being created here at the moment, isn't there? Lynn, you, you, you were picking up on this, weren't you? Yes, I was. I don't um, use TikTok. And one of the reasons I don't use it is because of its ownership, I must say. But I was also very nervous about using Zoom um, <laughs> uh, during the pandemic when it was all we, we had. But um, I feel a little bit more... Um, comfortable not using TikTok for the same reason that I don't I, I don't buy made in China stuff generally. Because I, I I look at what happened to Alibaba and I see that getting too big uh, for your boots in, in China is really quite a, a dangerous thing. Jack Ma has virtually disappeared from view. But I also think if there is any suspicion that a company like TikTok is a threat to national or personal security of the people who use it, then we ought to be asking questions. I think asking questions is good. And it's put everybody in a really tricky position. If you look at, um, I think what's happened at the BBC this week, Isabel, has pretty much exemplified the conundrum that we find ourselves in, insofar as in order to embrace new audiences and make that massive emotional connection that makes you a relevant news provider, the BBC has reporters who focus on TikTok. Whereas senior management have told BBC reporters to try and take TikTok off your work phone because of security (laughs) risks. So we have what is effectively an efficient and, dare I say on the face of it, if you're a 10, 11-year-old kid, an innocent way of learning about the world and, and having a bit of a laugh... Um, that is how most of us will see TikTok, whereas we have the likes of, you know, the United States, the European Union and now the, the British government and indeed the BBC saying, hang on a minute, there is there is a risk here, isn't there? Yes, you've also got an awful lot of American businesses who advertise on TikTok or, you know, it's embedded in, in people's lives. Like then I don't use it, but it's huge. <clears throat> but I did, excuse me, <clears throat> I did think that the um, Senate hearings, uh, the congressional hearings last week were pretty embarrassing. There was a, a degree of, of of showboating, of grandstanding from the from the politicians that really was unedifying. And I agree there is an issue around TikTok. It is, 
in some ways, the same issue around all big tech, and they haven't taken on American big tech or, you know, any big tech hoovers up our data and uses it. That's how, that's their business model. The, now, the difficulty is, it's, it's, is that it's the system. China, yeah, it's the, the, it's the fact that it's Chinese, which mm. adds a dimension of security, which I'm not unsympathetic to. But I think that it is an opportunity whilst looking at TikTok to say to all the big tech companies, and, and the United States is way behind the European Union on this, you know, come on, you you have to you if any of the transparency that TikTok offered in that hearing was applied to American tech firms, we'd all be a lot safer. <laughs> Um, finally, we've got a couple of minutes. At, at the beginning of the, the hour, we were talking about um, our, our existential struggles with trying to work out how to put the clocks forward. Um, <laughs> I was up all night. I had no idea what time it was. I was ranging from room to room, <laughs> terrified that I was going to miss coming to work because my clocks hadn't changed. Um, but Isabel, you, you wanted to point out this fact that if you're in Le- Lebanon, you do have a genuine problem now about what time it is. You have an absolutely genuine problem because the Christian authorities and the Muslim authorities have diverged on when to change the clocks. And um, apparently, for reasons which don't make a lot of sense to me, the Muslim authorities have postponed it till, um, till the end of next month so that... Uh, Muslims who are fasting can break their fast an hour early and the Christians have gone for it today. So presumably Lebanon is going to, I mean, what if you need a bus or a train? Is it a Christian train or a Muslim train? How do I How do I know? It's going to be extremely confusing in Lebanon. I think it's the first case I've had of a, of a country splitting itself into time zones in different directions, but well, then, within households or, you within, know, within, within villages. You know. My goodness, that's not going to make for... Easy no. living, is it? Um, but Lynn, you, you know, from Australia, you could possibly tell us that this is a country that's incredibly used to different time zones and you'd be taking this in your stride. <laughs> well, taking things in your stride doesn't mean that there's not a lot of complaining about it twice a year, <laughs> naturally. Um, but I, I, you know, I think there are probably four or five time zones in Australia. And one of the things that people always complain about when it's time to put the clocks forward or back is that um, the animals, agricultural animals, especially cows, will be adversely affected. And so you have your farmers in Queensland who don't want to change the clocks because their cows will be adversely affected by it. Um, And uh, the farmers in New South Wales whose cows will also be, and there's a half hour difference, I think, between there was, there used to be a new they may still between those two states and then there's you know so really we have to think about the cows I mean, do, do the cows actually read the clocks <laughs> I mean I think that if you need I think to this be is really milked. a problem with the farmers <laughs> not the cows maybe, maybe an extra hour on your udder pressure <laughs> Well, this is it, because I'm trying to work out from the point of view of an Australian cow. If my so let's say I get up at four, five o'clock to be milked in my days ahead and then suddenly it's six o'clock what does that mean for me as a cow, it means that my I'm milked early. I'm woken up from my sleep, or I'm I'm allowed to stay in an extra hour in my in my lovely warm barn. This is really about whether the farmer wants to get up an hour early. It is, in my it? view, Do you think? and he's making an excuse about? of the cow. You <laughs> he's know. blaming the cow. Well, right, <laughs> Isabel Hilton and Lynn O'Donnell. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio for Monocle on Sunday, and my warm thanks also to our editorial director Tyler Brule, to James Chambers, and to Mark Ditley too. And that that's all we have time for today's programme. The programme was produced by Desiree Bandley and our studio manager was Nora Hall. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But for now, from me, goodbye and enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>